I don't know what compelled me to finally share this, but I have been thinking about it a lot the past few days. I have a lot of thoughts about this, as it was the first and only time I felt legitimately afraid for my life. When I was about eight years old, my parents were going through a divorce, and me and my older sister used to spend a lot of time at our grandparents' house. It's a long, ranch-style home on a corner in a very nice neighborhood that's a 10-minute walk from a gas station, grocery store, and a few fast-food restaurants. The streets are long and lined with well-manicured houses, cradled by big, scenic California Valley hills all around. We were never very wealthy, but my grandpa bought it as a fixer-upper many years ago, and the property value has skyrocketed since then. As you can imagine, it's a very safe spot, and although there weren't many other kids in the neighborhood, it wasn't uncommon to see neighbors walking their dogs or pushing a stroller down the sidewalk outside of our house. Although my mom was especially protective all our lives, this particular neighborhood was densely populated and my family knew just about everyone who lived there. She grew up in that neighborhood herself, so she was understandably trusting. She would once in a while let me and my sister walk to the Rotten Robbie gas station on the other end of the block to grab a snack. I would always get a ring pop, and my sister would grab a Three Musketeers before we made our way back home. My sister was about 11 at the time, and this small amount of freedom was a really big deal to us. Nothing compared to walking down that street all by ourselves in the summertime, laughing and joking around, a couple dollar bills in our pockets. I felt like I owned the world. The one oddity I ever noticed around the neighborhood was a small camper that was parked on the side of the road opposite to the gas station, right along the backside of the fence of another house. It sat there in the shade like a permanent fixture, all the windows constantly covered by opaque beige curtains. I can't explain why, but it always gave me this deep sense of foreboding when I would pass it. I was almost positive someone was living inside it because at times, I would hear the air conditioning running as it sat stagnant in the same spot. The hairs on my neck would always stand on end as I passed it, particularly as I passed the camper door, and I'd always keep an eye on it for the fear that one day it would swing open just as I came to pass by. I think what bothered me the most was a drawing taped to the door from the inside. It was extremely messy, a sketch of odd lines in a brown-colored pencil that was frustratingly indiscernible. I could see the outline of something, a vague shape, but could never make out what it was intended to be. I never had the nerves to stop and stare long enough to really investigate, but each time I walked by, I would steal a glance. A year prior to the incident I'm about to describe, I was walking with my mom past the camper in the shade. We had just gone to the park nearby and, unfortunately, had to pass the camper before we could cross the street and continue walking. I didn't want to seem afraid, so I kept on walking right behind her and did not object when she walked past it. This time, I felt a little more brave. I was frustrated not being able to decipher the drawing for so long and, while my mom was feet away, I stopped in front of the camper door and took a moment to really look at the drawing. Upon closer inspection, the paper was filthy. I remember doing a project in elementary school where we soaked printer paper in black coffee to make it look aged 
and that's what it reminded me of. My mom walked on without noticing that I had stopped following her, but my eyes stayed fixed on the indistinct mass of dirt-caked scribbles until I could make out what looked to be a tiny, malformed face. My stomach turned. I immediately felt cold and disgusted as my eyes trailed over the rest of the image. I didn't know what kind of creature it was at the time, but now I can look back and say the drawing was a badly deformed fetus inside a mass of large, perfect circles, like those made by a circular ring ruler. Its face was contorted, as if in pain. It was so graphically disturbing, and seemed to portray this odd sense of suffering that stuck with me for days. As a child, I didn't know how to process it, and the mental image still makes me sick to think about. I had never seen anything like it before. Adrenaline flooded my body, and my chest hurt with fear, but I selfishly thought of my glorious little trips for ring pops, and said absolutely nothing as I followed behind my mom. This was, in retrospect, a classically terrible idea. It's one of those things you scream at main characters in movies for. Ever since my ill feelings towards the camper had been elevated by the drawing on the door, I thought about it every time we drove by, and about a month later, my mom once again graced us with several bucks and permission to walk down to Rotten Robbie and grab our respective snacks. I thought about telling my sister about what I had seen on the way there, but she was older and braver, and I was terrified she would make me cross the street with her to check it out. It was a bright sunny day, and I told myself with false certainty that nothing was going to happen. If I didn't acknowledge it, maybe it would go away. We walked past the camper, and it was thankfully uneventful. On the walk back, I was feeling more comfortable and was focused on fighting open my candy wrapper until my sister walked alongside me. We passed the camper a second time, but I didn't give it half as much thought as the first time. I don't remember what we were talking about, but I recall being interrupted mid-sentence as my sister softly, yet firmly, said my name. There was a distinct fear in her voice that immediately set me on edge, like a bucket of ice water. All my senses heightened, and I became aware of everything, including the sound of haphazard footsteps about ten feet behind us. It was accompanied by a heavy rustling sound, like a heavy backpack, and nervously, I half-turned my head to look. A man with a long, unkempt beard and wearing many layers of ragged clothing stood behind us, eyes unmistakably burning into our backs as he walked. His movements weren't normal. It was a drunken shuffle, like each of his feet were unimaginably heavy and needed to be moved one grand effort at a time. His shoulders were skewed, head tilted downward with a strange arc of his neck. I could hear his shoes scraping the gravel with every step, but rather than seeming genuinely intoxicated, it was as if he was intentionally meandering our direction like a zombie, with a direct effort to frighten us. Behind him, I saw that the camper door was wide open for the first time in all the years we had spent living there, and realized this was the man who had been living inside. He's following us. I choked out, my eyes filling with tears. My mind was spinning as I stared straight ahead again, 
and the wide street and sidewalks abnormally empty all around. My sister grabbed my hand. She squeezed it hard enough to hurt without looking my way, speaking carefully under her breath. On the count of three, we race home, she told me in a very serious tone of voice. I couldn't reply through the growing lump in my throat, but every single cell in my body understood that we had to put some distance between us and this man as quickly as possible. She began to count steadily while we walked faster, and the most terrifying part is that he started running before we even had a chance to. He must have heard her directions to me and tried to get a head start by sprinting our direction before she got to three, but his footsteps were noisy and we bolted like deer the instant we heard him behind us. I'll never forget it. The chase felt exactly like you imagine in your nightmares. The fear your pursuer is inches away from grabbing your arm or a fistful of your hair. I pictured myself being dragged into the van with nobody around to see or hear me. We ran so fast, we didn't even have the breath to scream, and peering back behind me, about 10 seconds later, I saw him running in our direction with absolutely none of the impairment he showed with those zombie-like steps moments before. I think back on it now, and he may have been deliberately pretending to be handicapped to lower our guard so we wouldn't start running. The thought is terrifying, but I can't rationalize it any other way. We made it to our grandparents' house and, without looking behind us, yanked open the stubborn old door before slamming it closed and scrambling past their excited dogs to get as deep into the house as possible. I don't even think we locked it, as our main goal was getting within the line of sight of any adults as quickly as possible. My mom was talking to my grandpa at the table and gave us an amused look when we bounded into the living room. Since we were kids, running around wasn't anything out of the ordinary and she didn't ask what happened as we collapsed on the couch and tried to catch our breath. The inside of the house felt safe and felt in such good spirits that I didn't even want to bring up what just happened. Like waking up from a nightmare you don't want to talk about, I was desperate to go back to normalcy. I wanted to forget it entirely, to unwrap my candy and act like everything was completely normal for the sake of my own sanity, and that's exactly what I did. I asked my sister a few years back if she remembered this incident, and her response was strange. She remembered immediately without the need for me to provide details, but she quickly waved it off and insisted he had to have been a bored homeless man looking to spook some kids walking home with no real intent to harm anyone. I don't know. I'd like to believe it's some innocent misunderstanding, but like they always say about gut feelings, they are rarely wrong. I feel in my soul that he wanted to hurt me and my sister that day. I never told her or anyone else about the strange drawing on the door, and I'm not sure if my sister saw the open door and connected him to the camper or not. It's one of my biggest regrets, as I would hate for any other children to have been less fortunate after innocently walking past the camper in the shade. I believe he may have chosen the spot between the park and gas station deliberately due to the number of children walking around the area. I never saw the camper again a day or so after this. I am not proud of how I handled this and would encourage anyone who finds themselves in a similar situation to contact authorities immediately 
for the safety of others around. I don't know if maybe this whole story comes off as melodramatic, but it was very real and very frightening in a way that I cannot forget. This happened in college, maybe seven years ago. At the time, I was living with one of my best friends, and we were very into the bar scene and partying and such. We lived in a city that was very much inundated with college kids, so it was never hard to find a party. And I am ashamed to admit it, but probably every other night, I was out partying. So this story starts on a night very much like every other. She and I got all dressed up and went on a bar crawl, we ended up at this club. It was one of the more popular ones in the area, and we meet up with my ex-roommate. The three of us are having a great night, but periodically, we were all interacting with this one guy. None of us remember his name, but he seemed normal enough. He sat next to us on the smoking porch and bummed a cig for me. He bought my friend a drink, and he was dancing next to us. We even all had a little conversation together although I can't for the life of me remember what it was about. But he was there, in the periphery, all night. Around 1am, the three of us decided that we were drunk enough and done dancing, and my ex-roommate invites me and the bestie to her place to smoke. None of us have cars at this point, but it's a nice night, and she only lives a couple of miles away, so we start walking. The downtown streets quickly turn into a semi-residential, semi-warehouse district area. Not the best part of town, or the most populated, but not a bad area by any means, and usually the streets are fully empty. We are maybe halfway to the house when we notice there's someone behind us trailing along and getting closer. We really don't think anything of it until we pause to light up some cigarettes, and he catches up, and we realize it's the guy who had been hanging around us at the bar. He's kind of stumbly, clearly drunk, and he greets us like old friends. We don't want to be rude, but it strikes all of us as kind of weird that he's there to begin with, but we shrug it off because he's drunk and seemingly harmless. I should say right now, he's a real scrawny guy, on the taller side, but thin, very thin, with a baby face and very big eyes. He just looks generally harmless and drunk. He asks if he can bum a smoke and walk with us until he gets where he's going, which isn't far, and he's clearly very unsteady on his feet, so we say sure, why not. So we're walking and chatting, and we're getting closer to our destination, but he doesn't make any indication of where he's going. So finally, I ask him, where do you live anyway? And he gives me this funny look, like I had asked something really stupid, and says, oh... I don't live anywhere near here. This kind of creeps us all out, and we sort of stop where we are, and I say, Okay, well then where are you going? And he replies, Oh, I'm following you. At this point, I think that maybe there's been like a misunderstanding in his mind, so I respond with something along the lines of, Okay, well no offense, but we don't even know your name, so you're not coming with us. And he gets this look, like hurt, but also angry, and a little manic, and he gets kind of loud and says, But I told you all my name. I told each of you my name. 
How do none of you remember my name? At this point, my ex-roommate steps in and says, Look, man, I know you're drunk, but you really need to calm down. And the guy stops and gets real calm, real fast. And he gets this really serious look and says, No, I'm not drunk. I'm fine. I just knew you'd trust me more if you thought I was drunk. At that point, I'm like, Uh, no, I'm out. But my roommate doesn't believe him and says something like, You've been stumbling this whole time, of course you're drunk. And he shakes his head, and in a completely calm tone, with no slurring whatsoever, he goes, No, I'm sober. I just wanted to see if you'd let me in your house. And my friend responds, Why? And the guy gets this huge smile, and his big eyes get even wider, and he says, I just wanted to see how close I could get to killing you. At that point, I had had enough, and I put on my authority voice, and I told him that that is enough and that we're leaving, and he needs to go the other direction now before I call the cops. He just shrugs and says, Fine. And we scurry away and leave him leaning up against a stop sign, just smoking a cig and watching us go. As soon as we are around the corner, we all break into a dead sprint and run for a few blocks, and then stop and freak out. We are in the middle of a panic whisper huddle when my friend looks over my shoulder and lets out this little scream. We turn around, and there he is. It's dark, so we can't really see his face, just his silhouette against the street lamps, but it was enough to know it was definitely him. He is striding down the road a few blocks down, hands in his pockets, not a trace of a stumble, and he's not exactly running, but he's walking at this real brisk pace and he had been on us in less than a minute. Luckily, we're only about a block away from my friend's place, so we start booking it there. We're almost at the front door when I realize, oh crap, we don't want him to know where we're going. Not the three of us alone. That seems dangerous. Fortune shines on us, as up the block, I can see the telltale signs of a garage party, and we book it over there instead. We come up to the lawn, and there's a bunch of guys out front, and we are breathlessly trying to explain ourselves, but when we turn around to point out the guy, he's gone. The partiers sympathize and let us hang out for a few hours, and a few of them even walked us back to the house. Thankfully, we never saw the guy again, and needless to say, my friends and I lost our taste for partying for quite a while after that. This story is 100% real. Here is a little bit about me. I live with my mom, dad, younger brother, and our dog in a very rural area in Germany. When this happened, I was about 13 years old. We don't have any close neighbors. It was a very cold Saturday in December. I remember the day because my mother only worked on Saturdays. My brother, father, and I spent our afternoon watching movies. It was close to 5 p.m. at the point this happened. Since it was winter, it was nearly dark outside. The room was lit by the TV and our fireplace. At one point, my brother looked outside the window because it started to snow heavily. We all looked outside the window, 
when all of a sudden, my dog began to growl. He ran up and down the room, very alert. This was very unusual for him to do. My dad stood up and looked around, but he didn't see anything. After a few minutes, he began to calm down again. We returned to our movie, and everything was fine for a few minutes. Then, he started doing it again. I noticed my brother was staring out the window next to our back door. I asked him what he saw, and he shook his head. Then, all of a sudden, we saw an elderly lady approaching our back door. We were baffled, because hardly anyone comes out here, especially not an older lady like this. She looked to be around 80 or 90, wearing one of those typical grandma aprons and a headscarf. Mind you, it was below zero outside. She tapped on the back door glass and started to smile, really weird. Meanwhile, my dog hid under the table, whimpering and growling. My brother came close to me, and my dad walked to the back door and opened it a bit. In a confused tone, he asked what she was doing in our backyard. She smiled and looked directly past him, at us. She never even looked at my dad. She took a step forward to the door, shoving her foot inside. My dad immediately pushed her foot back and shut the door on her. She glared at him, and then at us, before she started to laugh maniacally. Then, she just calmly walked away, like nothing had happened. We looked at each other in confusion, not knowing what to say. My brother and I looked outside the window behind us. We couldn't see her. The only way in and out of our backyard was the small path next to the house. From the window behind us, we would have seen her leaving, but she never passed by the window. My dad stepped outside and couldn't see her anywhere. Neither could he see any footprints in the snow. There was absolutely no way the tracks would have been covered by snow already, since only a couple of minutes had passed between her leaving and my dad going outside. To this day, we don't know what happened that day. I don't know if this was something paranormal or not. It may not seem so creepy to you, but to us as kids, this was the most terrifying thing we have ever witnessed. I'm an EMT, have been for almost three years now. I live and work in Southern California, and this particular transport happened when I was a brand new EMS worker at four months at a private ambulance company. This company was a private BLS, or basic life support company primarily, meaning we typically transported patients whose care provider had a contract with us. However, sometimes we would run 911 calls out of prisons. This is where my story begins. It was late into the night at our station when I heard the tone from my radio. Unit 221 priority response to state prison for an unknown medical. Copy, wheels up in two, I replied. I walked over to my partner who was sleeping on our rec area couch. Rise, a life needs saving, I sarcastically exclaimed. We hopped into the rig, the engine roared to life, and we set off lights blazing, sirens wailing. As we approached the prison, 
We killed the lights and sirens and proceeded with the routine security check. Once the guards were satisfied with the search, we were given access and led through the gates and parked outside the medical bay. Gurney and medical equipment in tow, we entered the prison hospital. Now, because my partner was the patient person for the last call, I was going to be primary care provider for this patient. Though I had been a pretty new EMT, I had done a lot of prison transports in a small period of time. I have had inmates scream at me, try to bribe me, and yes, even try to hurt me. So as you can imagine, I really wasn't looking for fight night on Unit 221 at 4 in the morning. Regardless, I always prepared for the worst. We were escorted in by guards as usual and led into the main area of the hospital's rooms, which were still fitted as cells. I was approached by a nurse who gave me a sheet of paper with his information and most recent vitals. I began to ask for the turnover report and why this patient required transport and where we were transporting to. The nurse stared blankly for a moment before he said, You're going to Scripps Mercy Shores Hospital, room 329. He's going because he doesn't feel well and he needs some tests done. He shouldn't be a problem for you. Already a few silent alarms were going off in my head. Scripps Mercy Shores is a rich people hospital. I have never heard of anyone other than someone wealthy going there, let alone a prisoner. Second, not feeling well and needs tests don't really paint me a great picture for why he needs to go and what I'll be dealing with. And finally, what does he shouldn't be a problem for you mean? If he's a violent inmate or even an at-risk patient, they would normally just say so. Getting an actual report on this patient's health and medical condition was like getting blood from a stone. I decided to just relent and go ahead with the transport. The prison guards brought the shackled patient out to us. Another oddity. Every other time I would go in and talk with them before getting them onto the gurney. Standing before me was a tall, rather frail-looking man with dark complexion. His eyes were red and sunken. His overall demeanor was a fearful one. He was constantly shivering. He looked horrible. I introduced myself and began my whole checklist of things to ask and address. We'll call him David. He answered all my questions with a small and quivering voice. When I asked what the problem was tonight, he gave a quick and frightened glance towards the guards and the nurse. I don't feel well. His reply sounded forced and rehearsed. Abuse from the staff came to mind first, but I would address that later. I decided to just go ahead and get this guy going, and I would wrap everything up in the ambulance. Before loading him in, I asked him the same question I asked all inmate patients. Be straight with me and I'll be straight with you. Are you going to cause problems once we get going? He quickly shook his head no, and we were off. When transporting prisoners, one guard accompanies in the ambulance, and another follows in what's called a tail car. This is for everyone's safety, and ensuring that if the patient tries anything, an official guard is there to address it. I was busy writing up my report when I realized that between the confusion of the call and the late hour, I had forgotten to get my own set of vitals. A rookie mistake. 
We were about halfway to our destination, and the patient had remained silent this whole time. I told him I was going to take his vitals, and instructed him to give me his arm so I could begin. He did so immediately, like he was trained to obey anything demanded of him, and did so with that haunting look of fear. I wrapped my blood pressure cuff around his arm, and that's when I felt him for the first time. His skin was ice cold. There wasn't even a slight warmth to his skin. I asked him if he would like a blanket, but he declined. I continued with my evaluation. I inflated the cuff, pressed my stethoscope to his brachial artery, and listened for the pulse to come back to show me his blood pressure. It did not come back. At first I thought my stethoscope was broken, so I grabbed a spare one. Same result. No pulse. I removed all my equipment and felt for his pulse myself. Nothing. I looked at him and asked if he felt alright. He replied with a simple, quiet, I'm okay, thank you. Caught off guard, I grabbed my pulse oximetry, which is used to find a heart rate and blood oxygen level, and put it on his finger. After a moment of the machine reading, the heart rate came back at zero, and the blood oxygen level came back at zero. My heart dropped. I took another set of vitals to see if I misread anything, but they all came back the same. Heart rate, zero. Blood pressure, zero. Blood oxygen level, zero. The only thing consistent was his respiratory rate, which was 24 breaths a minute. A bit higher than resting rate, but not alarming in itself. I looked back again and asked him once more if he's okay. He looked me in the eyes and nodded his head. Yes, as tears welled up in his eyes. Then he looked away. He was completely alert. He responded perfectly to all my questions. His eyes were equal and reactive. All signs of good brain function, but no signs of a pulse or any vascular activity. At this point, I don't know what to think. Scientifically, there is no reason this guy should be alive. Even if he had an artificial heart, he would be showing vital signs and have a battery pack with a filter kit. But he is right in front of me, alert, breathing, talking when addressed. It makes absolutely no sense. I decided to continue investigating. I listened to his heart with my stethoscope. There was no beating, no thumping, just the muffled sounds of his breathing. While I was there, I listened to his lungs, all clear, all normal. I had just finished listening to his chest when we pulled into our destination. We offloaded him from the ambulance, took him to the room we were instructed to, then he hopped off the gurney and was escorted to the hospital bed by the guards. I began giving my almost unbelievable turnover report to the nurse, who surprisingly did not seem alarmed by any of it. I wrapped up my turnover and then sat down in a nearby chair to finish up my report. As I sat, typing away at my computer, I am interrupted by the sound of a hospital gurney rolling down the hallway. It was accompanied by four people in surgical gowns who entered the inmate's room with said gurney. After a few minutes, the team in surgical attire emerges from the room, 
inmate strapped down to the gurney, with restraints. He is audibly crying, and they wheel him down the hall and around the corner. That was the last I saw of him. I told my partner once we were back in the ambulance. He didn't believe me at first, which I can understand. I joke around a lot, but with the look I gave him, he knew I wasn't kidding. This story may not have been what you were expecting. It's not violent or particularly frightening, but this was hands down the most disturbing call I have ever had. I don't know what I saw. I don't know what I transported. I have my theories, such as experimental treatments being carried out on inmates, but with skin like ice, hardly any vital signs, and such a fearful demeanor, I can only wonder what kind of experiments and what kind of horrors this man had faced. As a female who's been on the game for 15 years now, I have met a load of creeps, but only a few have made me feel unsafe. To start off, I've always had a laptop since I was in high school. A luxury back then, I worked hard to earn enough to buy one. My mom always took my money that I earned for things less than respectable. But luckily, money I made in tips were in cash, so it was easier to hide it from her. At first, my mom was mad that I bought myself a laptop, but she soon forgot like everything else. My dad could care less, and my older brother already had his own, so I started playing World of Warcraft with him at 14, and back then, girls playing were unheard of. So I got the usual creeps who usually backed off after hearing my age, but not this one guy. This guy loved that I was underage. I was about 16, and used to creepy guys at this point. No longer a noob at the game, or fending off the creeps. It was no surprise that a guy in my guild started hitting on me. Now I was 16. Stupid, but I knew I wasn't going to find love on World of Warcraft, where you know no one in real life. Plus, I had this ultimate crush on a guy that I couldn't have, because he was my brother's best friend. So it was easy to turn guys down, despite being desperate for one. But that all changed after my brother's friend went off to college. I had a part-time job with my brother's friend, but girls at work surrounded him, and I became demoralized that I would never find love. Cue the 19-year-old guy on World of Warcraft who made me feel wanted. I had a camera phone, so I could send and post pictures at that age, and back then, I mostly used Facebook, MySpace, and PhotoBucket. I lost a lot of weight my sophomore year, so I posted confidently bikini pictures and sexy pictures thinking that I would lure the attention of my brother's friend, whom was 19. So when this guy who was also 19 liked me, it didn't faze me. He looked the part in his photos, and his younger brother was my age, so I thought he was extremely attractive in his photos, and even proved it was him in his pictures by holding items I asked for. He started paying my World of Warcraft subscription, which in the long run, I realized was to get my home address and my real name. I was so stupid and heartbroken over my brother's friend, years of teaching myself online safety and the ability to be strong against flirts was all but lost in the fog. We would talk for hours on Ventrio and he would make me feel pretty 
I was completely blinded by this point. He sent me gifts, and I didn't even question how he had my address. Then he offered to drive and pick me up, as only then did I suddenly get cold feet. I had a good friend on World of Warcraft, someone my brother met on PAX and joined the guild, and is still one of my best friends to this day. He's six years older than me, but never creeped on me, was more like the protective brother that I lacked. He caught on to it through conversation, and was my words of wisdom in a time that I was lacking any of my own. He saw something was fishy when I couldn't. I told my friend I was scared to meet him because, dumb teenager logic, I thought he would not like me. My friend chimed in that I shouldn't meet anyone off the internet at my age. I told him about the gifts, and I swear, I have never been scolded like that before in my life, not even by my own parents, but he always cared like that. He wondered why I would give my address to someone I never met, and the expensive gifts that I received were not something the average 19-year-old could afford. None of this ever clicked for me, of course, because I was lonely and trying to prove something to myself, that I could get a boyfriend. So just like that, I told the guy it wasn't wise to meet in person, and my parents said I wasn't allowed to. That's when he went dark. At first it was pestering over and over, guilting me over the gifts he gave me and encouraging me to defy my parents. While he kept bothering me, it never once occurred to me that he would lose his cool. While my friend was worried about the guy having my address, going as far to drive the 11 hours to my house and explain the situation to my dad, as I refused to tell him out of fear of getting in trouble at the time, all while taking his spring break in my state instead of his own with his friends. There's a reason he's still one of my best friends. He has a little sister of his own as well, and she's my age, so his protective nature is natural. Eventually he made me block the guy, and that was that. This guy was so angry. He would go on different accounts to accuse me of gold digging and using him. Luckily my friend was smart enough and had the foresight to change my World of Warcraft password and even paid for my account for me, taking this guy off of it entirely, as one of this guy's threats was to delete my account. But it did not end there. It got worse as he would consistently find ways to message me and tell me how horrible I was, till about a month had passed. I was walking home from school, about a two-mile walk in the wealthy suburbs of New England, which I had done for years. Many kids did it, as it was a very safe town with no crime. Without a second thought, I took off with my 100-pound backpack, put my headphones in, and started my 20-minute walk home. It was cold, so I had earmuffs over my headphones, only drowning out the sound more. I swear if I could talk to myself as a kid, I probably would just slap myself for being so stupid, because the World of Warcraft guy knew that I walked home every day, as I had talked about it before. He knew my address, and I never thought twice. I was on the back roads walking home, and honestly easy to map from my school to home, as it was pretty straightforward, with only one turn. At halfway home, in between songs I heard a vague crunching sound of tires rolling over gravel on the road slowly. I turned around to see a tinted black car and you couldn't see much of the person driving. I jogged out of the driveway that I was standing in front of, assuming it was waiting to turn in, but it didn't turn in. The roads were dead 
and it did not make sense for him to not go around. I swear, the saying that you go cold when you're terrified is absolutely true. It could have been a summer's day at 95 degrees, and my bones would have been cold. My heart just sank, and my breathing was uncontrollable. I felt like I had no control over my body, as I realized this guy was following me. My blood ran cold, and my hands shook as tears formed, and my skin felt tight. My body felt like it wasn't ready to fight or flight, but simply freeze there and die. It only got worse, as the second time I turned my head to see the car stop, I stopped. My world stopped. I couldn't stop staring, just froze, and breathing like all my school books were on my chest, crying silently. My eyes hurt, with no tears or sound as I just stood there. The door opened after what felt like hours, but only seconds, maybe a minute. And it was in fact him. It was the attractive guy from the photos. Not a catfish, but something seemed different. At first I thought it was his angry expression, but soon realized he was definitely not 19. More like in his 30s. I could barely think over the loud sound of my heart racing as it froze me in place. I thought I was about to throw up as he spoke to me. Told me to get in the car or he would light my house on fire. I honestly just couldn't move, couldn't reach for my phone, as his words turned me to stone. And somehow, we both failed to notice the little old lady on her porch watching this play out. Suddenly I hear her yell, get away from that girl right now before I burn you alive. We both turned to meet her eyes, a completely serious, angry, small lady, about 60 or 70, with white hair. I think she noticed my frozen and fear state as she told me to get over to her quickly. Like that, I ran over to her, tossing off my heavy brick of a backpack. It was obvious he was unsure what to do next as he stood there and watched me run to her. Must have been a sight, this tiny, thin old lady standing in front of a teenage girl yelling at this man to go away. Just like that, Savior Number 2 joined the battle as her husband stepped out, a man that looked like he had been through a war or two, with a booming voice. I've killed men for less reason. You better leave right now. He got into his car and drove off as I simply collapsed. All that fear just came out as I cried harder and harder, as my brain sifted through the past few months of mistakes. After calming me down enough to speak in non-hyperventilating words, she asked me if I knew him. I told her kind of, but only online, from a video game, not real life. Of course explaining it wasn't easy. She got on the phone with the school counselor. Her daughter apparently told her my name. I was well known to her daughter, ironically, but it was only 250 or less kids in the school, and the town itself was small. Many staff at our school had family in town. Kids at school they were related to, either by their own children or their siblings' children. It was the kind of town, if you didn't leave by a certain age, you were stuck there. So honestly, it seems ironic, but not entirely a huge surprise. The counselor was well aware of my family and my mom's addiction, as child services had been involved a few times. She came by in about 10 minutes to pick me up, 
and asked me a ton of questions, of course, knowing I didn't want to involve the police as I was scared of being taken away from my parents. Again, we weren't rich, but we were more well-off than many. Though my mom worked, my dad kept my mom in a tight budget to keep her from buying prescriptions from Canada she wasn't prescribed. She knew all of this and knew though it would be rough, I was better off than foster care, which was a gamble with losing odds at best. Plus, two more years and I would be off to college anyway. So we didn't involve the cops, but she made me promise to take the bus every day and to inform my dad of the situation. She also called my dad at work to inform him and had a teacher make sure I got on the bus every day until I graduated. It really sucked, but I understood. If it ended there, it would be nice, but there's still more to the story. Two days after this, my dad had to fly out for business. My brother was off at college, so it left me and my mom, who promised my dad she would stay sober while he was gone, but I was used to helping her while she was intoxicated. It was like taking care of a child, but I was on edge, as every creak in that big house from the 60s, the cat stirring at night, the dog barking outside set me on edge, and I barely slept. My friend from World of Warcraft called every night, making sure I was okay for the past month. I lived in the middle of the woods, next to a huge river in my backyard, so there was still a lot of wildlife outside in the dead silence of cold months. Running water is an important source of water when the lakes freeze. I had been used to all the bumps in the night, cats coming and going and dogs barking at every animal in the yard, but it all seemed new to me as I laid in bed trying to drown out my fears. The house I grew up in was a six-bedroom house. I had a little sister too, but she stayed with my grandma in another state, per court order, while I was allowed to choose due to her only being nine and me 16. The other rooms were used as a game room, an office for my dad, and a guest room, mostly for when my sister visited my grandma, so she had a room to stay in. So in a large house like that in the middle of the woods, it was scary to virtually be alone because my mom was defenseless. I was letting my last cat inside for the night, and I noticed, at the end of the long driveway between my neighbor's house and our house, was a parked black car. I quickly shut the door and locked it after my cat got inside. I made sure all five doors were locked and even put cardboard on the glass doors to the pool, hoping that if someone broke them, it would delay him if he was in fact in that car. I went and turned off all the lights and got all my cats into one room so I knew they were safe. Here's the thing about my dog. He's untrained for the most part, but was basically a giant puppy in his mind. He growled at strangers, not barked like at animals. We had to keep him outside if we had guests, but he never bit anyone, and if you spent enough time around him, he would eventually accept you. He didn't growl at all strangers either, so he wasn't the most reliable guard dog. But he was big, and he had a deep bark. I mulled over what to do as I sat there in the dark with my dog, waiting for a shadow to pass by the window. I eventually went upstairs to my mom's room and woke her up from her sleeping pill slumber. Groggy and still kind of intoxicated, she did not quite grasp what I was telling her until I started crying. She kind of sobered up and asked me to get her some coffee, and I did, all while I'm watching my dog's every move. 
because I knew that he would be able to sense something before I did. As my mom sobered, the fear in her eyes grew. Eventually she got the idea to call my neighbors and ask them if they knew the car. After they all said no, two of the men left their house to go check the car. The car was empty. At closer inspection, they noticed it was a newer car, a Lexus, and in the passenger seat was a laptop. The car was locked, but with a flashlight you could see somewhat into the tinted windows. They never told us why, but something they saw in the car prompted them to call the local sheriff. There was only one, and he lived in town. He drove over about 15 minutes later, ran the plates and asked all the neighbors about it. Apparently, it was a rental car from Ohio, and he was calling to see who it was rented to, but the offices were closed. He stuck around in his car for about an hour, until someone came out of the woods and ran back in as the cop shined his spotlight on him. I couldn't see what he was pointing at with his light, as it was on the side of my house and I was looking out the front. I guess he called for backup, as three other cop cars showed up in five minutes from the neighboring town, at which time a lady cop got out of her car and I asked to speak with her and for her to call my counselor at school to explain who that might be. I was pretty shy back then, but something about a female cop made me feel more comfortable to open up to. I told her the gist of the story, and then she called my counselor who backed up my story, but also was explaining why I was scared of cops because of my history with foster care and not wanting to go back. At which time, a mostly sober mom joined me, hugging me, doing her typical apologetic routine, but also offering much-needed comfort, as she called my dad, too. Eventually, the lady cop asked if she could take a look around the house to see if things were secure and get any information from my laptop about him. In her search, she found something I didn't think about checking. The basement door was not just unlocked, but open. It's never unlocked, so I did not even think to check it as our backyard floods in the spring due to beaver dams and it's got extra seals and stuff to prevent the basement from flooding again but the stuff that was sealing it, which was mostly sandbags and stuff, were set aside. But the door at the bottom of the stairs was locked, even though it did have some damage, like someone tried to pick it. But he did have access to half the basement that was storage, and the other half used to be used for my brother's parties. The door between the sections was like a front door, not an indoor door, as in the summer my dad left the hatch open to dry out the basement and adjust pool settings as it was basically the pool house, and the cats loved it, so it also had a few cat beds. The section that led upstairs was locked from the inside, and the wall and door were not drywall and were made of cheap material, but the lock and key heavy door was brick. Upon noticing this, my dad confirmed that he had not left it open. My suspicions that black car was his was pretty much confirmed. As we walked through the house to make sure everything was still safe, she got on my laptop as they searched the woods. I gave her everything I had, his photos, username, and she even checked to see if his credit card was still on my account, but it wasn't. But the last few digits were. She then asked to take my laptop for a few days as she thought she could get some good evidence from it. I asked her to please not damage it and return it as soon as possible because I used it a lot. This was before smartphones so it was all that I had. 
After a few hours and the onlooking neighbors had gone to bed, the cops came back empty-handed, but left one cop outside of our house, and they towed the guy's car. From what the lady cop told me, what permitted such fear in the car was multiple weapons, some sort of rope, and handcuffs, and the guy that ran back into the dense woods was wearing a mask. So eventually I try and lay down to go to sleep, but pretty sure I was going to call out sick tomorrow and kept all my cats inside for the day. I was too restless to sleep. Every sound scared me. My mom slept with the dog in her room, and my cats slept in my room most nights by choice, as my room was usually the warmest. At 3.30 a.m., I heard a knock at the back door, and I heard a man say that he was an undercover police officer and to open the door. I was still awake as I walked downstairs to make out a guy standing in the dark. He had a weapon. As he saw me, he demanded that I let him in, now, as he needed to speak with me. Something felt off. My gut knew it before I did, that this guy's voice seemed forced, like someone purposely making their voice deeper. And why was he at the back door? So I turned on a light outside and sure enough, it was him. I just screamed and as quickly as I did, he started pounding on the door hard. It wasn't a loud horror movie scream, but more like a gasp. I don't think the fear in my body had a loud scream to let out, but the banging was pretty loud as I ran to the front to see the officer was still outside. He was, but he wasn't getting out of his car. I didn't want to run outside as I am not the fastest runner, so I turned the porch lights on and off a couple times, but still, nothing. After a minute, my dog came bolting down to the door, barking and growling, nearly foaming at the mouth, soon followed by my mom, who was angry and was threatening the man. Somehow during all this, the cop outside had snuck around back and had his weapon pointed at him, yelling at him to put his down. I hid as the rest went down, but he was arrested. No trial needed me to attend, and my statement was enough. Come to find out, he wasn't even American. The car was rented under his friend's name, and after all that was done, he was deported back to Canada. I assume something with his passport would prevent him from coming back to the USA, as the cop reassured me that he couldn't come back to the USA now. I don't know what exactly he was charged with, but I think my dad said activated assault with a deadly weapon, attempted kidnapping, and something else. And it also turned out that he was 32 years old, not 19. So I assume me being a minor carried another charge. And life moved on from there. I had plenty of creeps before and after, but he was by far the worst from World of Warcraft. I experienced a couple more creeps from streaming but I'm an adult now, and much better at staying safe online. I was living in Tbilisi a few years ago, the capital of the Republic of Georgia, running a kind of legally ambiguous consumer credit operation when I figured it was time I took a much-needed weekend getaway in a nearby small town. The town I settled on is an extremely popular tourist location, 
given its beautiful location along a river nestled in a deep valley and rife with ancient churches. With many options for potential guest houses, hotels, and rentals, I decided to not book in advance and to just traipse around until I found something appropriate. I found a very adequate guest house perched on a hill with about a one-acre plot. Upon entering the guest house, I was greeted in typical Georgian fashion by an incredibly hospitable elderly woman and her son, who seemed to be in his early thirties, who resumed his yard work of filling a large hole that he said was a septic tank with a foul lingering smell after a brief introduction. Again in typical Georgian fashion, the hostess offered me tea, homemade wine, bread and cheese, all of which were much needed and fantastic. I am an American, but my family came from Eastern Europe, so I speak Russian, as most Georgians do, so we were able to chat a lot. Our conversation progressed from basic get-to-know-you bits to more personal information, like whether I am seeing anyone or who I am dating, which does come up in surprising frequency when you meet sweet grandmothers who want you to meet their granddaughters. At the time, I was dating a fellow expat from a Western European country. When I told the hostess that I was seeing someone, she seemed thrilled and asked me to show her a photo. She reacted with an ah and nodded in approval, commenting on her physique in a way that would probably be inappropriate if it wasn't a cute old grandma. I was then pressed by the hostess as to why I didn't invite her and how that isn't what a good boyfriend would do. Put on the spot like this, I lied and said she was very busy with a work project which she wasn't, but would be arriving later in the evening. The hostess was elated by this news and called over her son and asked me to show the photo of the girl I was seeing. Early in our conversation, it was established that I do not speak in Georgian. The son saw the photo and affirmatively nodded and spoke in Georgian to the hostess briefly and then turned to me with a beaming smile and a thumbs up and said in English, very pretty, you lucky brother. He then in Russian asked if I texted her to invite her. I lied and said that I did text her and reiterated that she was arriving in a few hours. It was around 4 p.m. at the time in a beautiful golden hour glow that lit up the surrounding mountains and valley. The son said that he would join us and asked if I liked cha-cha. Cha-cha is the very strong national liquor of Georgia, ranging from 30 to 75% alcohol content and made from distilled grapes. I had become quite the savant of cha-cha, and despite some strange feelings about their fixation on the female visitor, I obliged. Cha-cha is not for the weak-hearted, but I was very used to consuming it at the time. I should have paid more notice to the very intentional placement of the shots that he filled for us, but I pushed those misgivings aside and had the shot after a very traditional toast. Around 20 minutes later, I felt exhausted and ill and excused myself to my room, saying that I needed a quick nap. Walking to my room, I knew something was amiss. As mentioned in the beginning, I was fronting a questionable business, and I did have a weapon in my bag and made a mental note to take it and put it under my pillow. But as one can imagine, it isn't easy to remember things even on short term when you're apparently drugged. Despite failing to collect my weapon, as the afternoon sun was blaring into the room and I wanted darkness, passing out at around 4.30 p.m., 
I awoke to darkness at 4.45 a.m. with a raging headache. My window shades were partially open, despite me closing them before passing out. They were opened with about two feet of space visible to the outside. My bags were not in the position I left them, and the television was on and on high volume despite me never using it, and the door was only partially closed. I peered out the window and didn't see anything, so I quickly went to my bag, retrieved my weapon, and went to the bathroom with the intention of calling my coworkers or a driver to pick me up. I had no cell service and no Wi-Fi, despite having perfectly fine reception the day prior. I went back to the bed with the weapon under my pillow, with zero desire or inclination to fall back asleep. After an hour or so of pretending to be asleep, I saw the sun peer through the window to get a look inside. At this point I was certain it was not my imagination playing tricks on me, and that I was in trouble. I came out around sunrise to find both the hostess and her son sipping tea on the deck, and I told the hostess that my girlfriend was arriving soon on a bus and that I would bring her when it arrived. I grabbed my backpack and left my other bag to give the impression I wasn't fleeing. Got service immediately after leaving the property and called a partner to pick me up. Old school businessman who was floating the money that I had run the lending operation with. I told him the story and he said he would handle it. And he did handle it. I still think about the foul smelling hole the sun was digging. Maybe the last guest? Weeks later, I decided that wasn't the place or business for me, and applied to law school on the other side of the world. One time, my two friends and I were chilling in my living room. My two friends were both sitting on my chair about six to seven feet away from me, and I was reclining back in my lazy boy. I was getting drowsy and thought that I might take a little nap, and I started getting a little cold. I need to mention that I had been unconsciously holding onto a cigarette lighter in one hand that had a metal lighter case on it. Since I was beginning to get a little chilly, I crossed my arms in order to warm up. The second that I did, I started being electrocuted, and I don't mean shocked, like some static electricity or something, I mean my entire body started convulsing uncontrollably. I remember in that instant putting every ounce of my focus and energy into attempting to stand up, and after a few short seconds, I was able to. The moment I was able to, the electricity stopped shocking me, and I stood there flabbergasted, not sure what just happened. And that's what's even weirder, is that neither of my friends even noticed what had just happened. When I told them, they didn't believe me, and it didn't make sense, since I hadn't been touching or even near touching anything electrical, or that could conduct electricity. My one friend turned the chair I had been sitting in over, and helped me look everywhere around me for some kind of explanation as to how it might have happened. We never found anything, but a few minutes later as I sat trying to convince them both that it really happened, I opened my hand and set the lighter down, and on my hand sat a little square burn the same shape as the metal lighter that I had been holding. Suffice it to say, that was the craziest thing that's ever happened to me. The burn was proof that it really happened, 
and I still have no clue how I was able to get my body to stand up, or how I knew that's what would make it stop. But it did. I still have no idea how it happened, how I got shocked so dramatically from sitting in a cushioned chair. But it happened. So let me preface this story by explaining that I live in a regional town of Australia. There is no trafficking problem here. It just doesn't exist. There's no gang activity, no unsolved murders, and no missing people or unsolved crimes. Just to give you the lowdown of the sort of area that I live, this happened today, and I'm still unsure whether I should do anything about it or if the police would even bother. I flip furniture as a hobby, I like to pick up free or cheap worn-out furniture, repair it, repaint it, and then resell it. It keeps my mind occupied. Facebook Marketplace is usually my go-to to find stuff. So this morning I found a post for a free table. I messaged the person, asking if I can pick it up today. As I am messaging them, their Facebook profile picture disappeared. I thought that was weird, but maybe they had just changed it. They agreed to a time and gave me the address. No worries, it's on the edge of town. They send me a random, obscure message asking if I'm coming alone or if I'll have somebody with me. I'm not married or anything, and this is slapping me in the face with red flags, but I think maybe the table is heavy and they just think that I might need some help to carry it. I respond with, no, it's all good, I'll be fine. No response back. I have this uneasy feeling that something isn't right with this. I've never felt this way before, and I don't know why I do now, but I figure it's the middle of the day, I've got my phone, and I'm driving, and this is a safe town. Maybe I'm just overthinking the whole thing. So I hop in my car and head to the agreed place. I couldn't find the exact address on my GPS, which I thought was odd, but nevertheless, I find the street. There's nothing there, and by that I mean, there is a creek that runs by the side of it, empty lots with bushland and tall overgrown grass, a disused, isolated somewhat motel, and three warehouses. By this stage, I am feeling really off. Everything inside me is saying there is definitely something wrong with this situation. I'm paying a little more attention to that feeling, but keep going. Two of the warehouses have no signage, but there's a couple of cars out front, and I can tell that they're used as businesses of some sort. Their address isn't the one I was given though. Even though the motel looked like it hadn't been used in years, I see a man sitting on the step of one of the units, smoking. I think to myself, that's a bit creepy, but maybe he owns the place and is doing some work there and is just taking a break, or maybe he's a squatter. So I drive down the street a little further and find the last warehouse. The address is where pickup is meant to be, so this must be it. I start thinking maybe they got the number wrong. I mean, this place has tall weeds surrounding it, garbage in the front, and surely hasn't been used since it was built. I might like free furniture, but I'm not an idiot. I decide I don't want it anymore, and message the guy that I was sorry, but I couldn't find the place. I get a message back asking if I'm the one in the truck, and telling me that they saw me drive down the road, and they ask again if I'm alone. 
There's no cars or any sign of life at this warehouse. And by now, my intuition is screaming at me to get out of there. Yes, I'm in a truck, but I don't see anyone. I message a reply and say yes. Sorry, I couldn't find the place. I'm leaving. I get no response for about an hour. No sorry, nothing. A little bit later, the only response I got was, It's the old motel. You have to get out of your car and walk to the back of it to get reception. That same worn-down, isolated motel with overgrown weeds that hasn't been used for years. The same one with the weird guy sitting on the step. I assumed that guy was the person messaging me. I message back and say, It looked like that motel hadn't been used in years. I get no response. Nothing. So I head home and sit down for a drink and to Google this place again. I have forgotten the exact address he gave, so I go back to Messenger to find it. Except it's gone. So I go back to Facebook Marketplace and the whole ad is gone. It disappeared as if it never existed. What do you think? Am I overthinking this? Or did I just avoid something sinister? It was the summer right after I graduated from high school. A good friend and I decided to try our hand at camping. We grew up in the greater Los Angeles area, so our knowledge of the great outdoors was nothing beyond the couple of years that we had in Cub Scouts of America when we were in elementary school. In other words, we had almost no idea what we were doing. We packed a tent, a couple sleeping bags, supplies, etc., and headed off in his car. We grew up in the 80s, so this is a time before the wide prevalence of cell phones and the existence of other portable digital devices. We drove north on the 395 for about six hours and then headed westward into the mountains in the area of Inyo Canyon. First mistake, we did not plan on which place to camp. We played it by ear, like fools. Second mistake, we left in mid-afternoon so it was pitch black darkness when we arrived in the general area. We had driven off the main road and onto a dirt road in order to find a spot to camp. The dust from driving on the dirt road overwhelmed the headlight high beams when we finally decided to pull over and set up camp. It was around 11.30 at this time and we were exhausted and famished. Any place was a good spot to camp for us given our only reason to do so at that point was our hunger and exhaustion. Third mistake, we did not bring flashlights. We only had Bic lighters for our cigarettes. We tried to set up the tent using our lighters and the headlights of the car, which was parked about 10 to 15 feet away. The wind was blowing, so the lighter constantly went out after a few seconds, either directly because of the wind or indirectly because the wind would push the flame into our thumb. Clearly, we were being complete idiots. We finished setting up the tent, but at that point, I was too tired to eat. My friend managed to make some instant ramen. We smoked a cigarette in the car, then crashed out in the tent. We awoke to a very cold morning. It must have been around 5.30. Immediately upon exiting the tent, we realized that we were camped at the entrance of a hiking trail. There were at least two no-camping signs in visible distance from us. We dismantled the tent, 
cleaned up, and cleared out. That morning, we ended up buying some cheap flashlights and a nice hot meal in a very small town. It wasn't really a town, but more like a few storefronts with shops on a main road, about the length of an average city block. We went into some office, though I don't recall exactly what it was. It might have been a park ranger station or the office headquarters for a campground. In any case, we found and reserved a site for the night. The campground was basically like a large circle with campsites along its outer circumference, with each campsite being about 50 yards from its neighbor. In the middle of the circle was a common bathroom and shower. We circled around it once, and I think we saw one family that was all set up with a tent and camper. We found our spot and set up camp, which was quite far from them. That night is when we had the creepy encounter. My friend and I were laying in the tent, shining our flashlights upwards and chatting. Our new flashlights eventually gave out. Yes, broke. Our fire pit was about six feet from the opening of our tent, and it was just a glowing ember. We probably should have completely put it out, and we probably shouldn't have had the tent so close. In any case, there we were, chatting away and having a good time. My friend began to be distracted with his foot. After the third or fourth time, he got up to check his foot. I asked him what was wrong. He told me that something was tapping his foot from the outside of the tent. His foot was against the side of the tent, so from the outside, you would have been able to see a bulge in the tent's side where his foot was. It was as if pebbles were being thrown at his foot through the tent. There it is again! What the heck? Each time it happened, there was a sound, like pebbles or a light tap. We sort of laughed it off, assuming that it was a twig or grass moving in the wind, or perhaps a loose strap on the outside of the tent. I don't recall exactly how it happened at first, but I do remember we suddenly became silent at the same time. A sound came to be audible to both of us. Footsteps slowly moving towards our tent. We wondered if it was a bear or other non-human animal, but it seemed distinctly bipedal. They were very slow and measured, like a step every two seconds. I finally said in a whisper, Someone's out there. My friend didn't move. His face had an expression of fear. At some point, my friend bolted up and said, F this. He grabbed his pipe, stuffed it full, and took the biggest, deepest drag I've ever seen a person take. About one or two minutes later, he was out. Smoking is not my thing, so I was alone in the tent, as far as conscious bodies are concerned. I was sitting up at this point, and I had taken out the only weapon I had, a Swiss Army pocket knife. I took out the big and small blades, as well as the ice pick in the middle, and held it like some ridiculous melee weapon. I could see the glowing embers of the fire pit through the sheer nylon material of our tent, and I was able to roughly, but barely, discern some of the rocks around it. I watched and listened intently. The footsteps came closer, and at the same slow pace. With each step, I could hear the dirt and rocks underfoot crunching and grinding. At some point, it was clear to me that whoever it was was standing between the tent and the fire pit, for my fuzzy line of sight to the burning embers through the nylon tent became obscured 
by something outside of the tent. The footsteps stopped right at the front of our tent, about six to eight inches from the entrance to the tent. It was silent for about one minute, and then I heard a click. At exactly the same time, I clearly saw through the nylon tent wall a flashlight turn on. I was able to see not just the flashlight, but the outline of the hand holding it. The flashlight was shining on the zipper entrance into the tent, just inches from the zipper. Blood drained out of my head, and my palms instantly became dripping in sweat. I yelled, Who's there? There was some fear in my voice, but it was mostly aggressive in tone. Whoever it was, the person immediately turned off their flashlight. I didn't move, but neither did they. The person just stood there, inches from the tent's only entrance. My friend is out, totally unaware of what's going on. Nevertheless, I pretended that he was still awake and whispered just loud enough to be audible to our visitor. Yeah, loaded. There's one in the chamber. As if my friend was awake and asked me about a weapon. Fourth mistake. We did not have any real weapon for self-defense. It felt like an eternity, but after sitting still for at least ten minutes, I heard feet slowly turning in the dirt, then slowly walking away from the tent. I stayed up the whole night, and it wasn't until the light of dawn came through the tent that I crashed out. The heat inside the tent woke us up, and it was near noon by this point. We went outside to inspect the site, but found nothing missing. However, we did find boot prints all over our campsite, and leading away from the campsite and outside the campground. That was the last time I camped in a tent. When I was 11, my family lived in Alaska, about 14 miles north of Anchorage. As soon as you leave the actual city of Anchorage, you're in the wilderness pretty quickly. This event happened to me in the summer of 1977. I remember because the original Star Wars had just come out a few weeks before, and I was obsessed with it at the time. In 1977, the town I lived in was actually just a series of roads and off-roads. Most of the people there commuted to Anchorage for work. That's what my parents did. They both worked nights, meaning I spent most of my time alone at home. I don't have any siblings. Our house was about a half a mile in front of the nearest paved road and surrounded by woods. I didn't have any real friends that lived close by. I knew a kid who lived at the end of my road. He was actually the next closest house and was still about 300 yards from mine. One afternoon that summer, I was watching TV when there was a knock at our door. I looked outside and saw that it was the kid from the end of the street with someone else. I opened the door and he told me this kid was his cousin whose family had flown up from wherever they were to visit. I can't remember the kid's name. I do remember immediately being nervous around this guy. He had blonde hair down to his shoulders wore a t-shirt under a thin leather vest. This kid's eyes were dark, very dark. I knew he was very bad news. The boy from down the street even seemed nervous around him. They asked to come inside, 
and I told him they weren't allowed. And this kid then reaches behind his back and, pu and pulls out the biggest knife I have ever seen. I remember thinking for a second that it looked like a sword. If you've ever seen the movie Crocodile Dundee, where he tells some robbers, that's not a knife, this is a knife, and pulls out a huge knife, well, that's the knife this kid had. I told them I was going back inside. I went back in and watched some more TV. About an hour later, there was another knock on the door. I go to the window to where I can see the door. I peek out, and sure enough, it's that kid again. Although now, he's alone. The second time he knocked was louder. He called my name. The kid down the street must have told him my name. I stayed quiet. He left the door and started walking around our house. My mother had a sunroom where she grew plants. It had large windows all along the wall. I saw him go to those windows, press his face against the glass and cup his eyes, trying to see deep into the house. I stayed out of sight. Luckily there were no lights on and I had turned the TV off when I heard the knock. When he couldn't see anything, he continued around the house. He took out that huge knife and began tapping the blade on the wall as he circled around. Then he started saying, I know you're in there. I almost crapped myself. Of course he knew I was in the house. I was 11, home alone. He knew I didn't leave. Hop in a car and take off? I continued keeping low and quiet hoping he might think I went to a friend's house somewhere else. How long could this psycho kid just circle the house? He was maybe 14. He would get bored quickly, right? No. This kept up for about an hour. I had gone all in on the I'm not home tactic, so I stayed quiet and made my way to the kitchen where our telephone was. This was 1977, remember? No cell phones, and our phone was attached to a wall in the kitchen. Luckily, it had a super long handset cord. I got it, stayed low to the floor, and called my mother at work. She took me seriously, but there was no way she could get home. My dad was in the Air Force, and they sure wouldn't let him skip out early to handle his son's crisis. I would have to ride it out. The sun had gone down, and by that... I mean it was barely peeking above the horizon. In the summer, the sun never went completely down in our area. The kid kept pacing around for another 30 minutes or so, and then suddenly was gone. Not being an idiot in a horror movie, I just stayed down and quiet. Eventually my parents got home. I was still awake. They brushed it off as to say, See, nothing to worry about. I never hung out with the kid down the street again, and I pretty much stayed inside the remainder of the summer. There was something wrong with that kid. Maybe it was in my head, or maybe he would have done something absolutely brutal to me. Thankfully, I'll never know. A few years back, my husband brought home one of those video doorbells from a local gadget store. We had had some problems with thieves in our neighborhood here in Lake Worth, Florida, 
and we figured this would help us catch the culprits. The whole thing with the video doorbell was that as soon as anyone steps onto the porch, the built-in camera started to record. So basically, anyone who came close enough to our front door would be caught on camera, and if our Amazon packages continued to get stolen, we would have a clear image of whoever had taken them. Long story short, it worked. We caught the thieves on the doorbell cam, took the footage to the cops, and within a week, we had gotten news that they had been arrested. It was a huge win for us. Those guys had stolen almost $300 worth of stuff from us over the course of about three months or so, and it had caused a bunch of problems with Amazon before we figured out the stuff was just being stolen. Point being, the doorbell cam was a huge success, and despite the hefty price tag, it was well worth the investment. But then last year, on Thursday morning of January 24th, I woke up to a notification on my phone. We were so pleased with our doorbell cam that we ended up getting a better model in late 2018, one which came with a very interesting feature. The camera came with an app you could download for free from the Google App Store, one which would show live images from the camera direct to your phone. It also had a feature which, if you weren't available to open up the app to check out the live feed, it would make a little recording which you could then stream whenever you had the time to do so. Neat little feature, right? Well, I didn't think it was so neat that morning. The app was telling me that a video had been recording at around 6am, one that was a good few minutes long. The last time it had done that was when the neighbor's cat was chilling on our porch for a while in the middle of the night, which was frankly amazing to wake up to, and had me and my husband like, aww, for a while when we woke up. Only this video was not so cute. I opened it up and pressed play, and the first thing I see is this shadowy figure silhouetted on the porch. The doorbell cam emitted a certain amount of infrared light, so it could pick up directly what was in front of it, even in the dark, but the figure was just out of range of this, so all I could see was this big old dark shape. But then the shape got nearer to the camera, closer and closer, until a face was slowly illuminated by the infrared light. Those of you who know what a person's face looks like when it's lit up, like you know how disturbing it can be, how inhuman that kind of light makes a person look. It makes light-colored eyes seem almost pale white, like they're undead or something. It just generally gives the person an ethereal, ghostly look. It looked like a ghost, but it was most definitely just a man. Not that it made the idea of him hanging around our porch any less creepy. This guy had a rough, scraggly beard and was wearing what appeared to be a really dirty t-shirt. In his left hand, he had like a stack of mini newspapers or something, or maybe it was a phone book. I'm not completely sure whatever they were. At one point, he brought them up to his face and appeared to sniff them before moving in much closer to the camera, like darting close and away, close and away, over and over again. I had no idea what he was doing at first, up until the point that he leaned in close to the camera and gave it a big lick. Like yes, he actually licked it, and it was absolutely disgusting. You could see right inside this guy's mouth how much slobber was on his tongue, and knowing that stuff ended up on my doorbell. Ugh. 
gross. He knew he was being recorded too. Like as crazy as this guy was, he knew enough to realize that it was a doorbell cam and must have had some idea of how they functioned too. Because after he's done licking the camera and assumedly the doorbell, he starts showing off the phone book or the newspapers, pointing to different words and stuff like he wanted us to read them. Then after a few more licks or kisses of the doorbell, he begins to walk away with a string of drool just hanging from his chin. I mean, he was obviously on something, or drunk, but what exactly, I have no idea. I'll never truly know. But what I did know was that it was intensely creepy to know that he had been so close to me while I was asleep. Like our house at the time was kind of small, and the bedroom was pretty close to the main hallway, and therefore the front door. If he had really wanted to, he could have just bust open our bedroom window and had been in our bedroom in a few seconds. I was just thankful that he wasn't in a violent mood that night, or things could have been very, very different. But perhaps even weirder, and probably pretty sad too, is that when I showed my husband the video, he actually knew the guy. According to my husband, he used to live in the neighborhood and had lost his home somehow and ended up and ended up on the street. Apparently, he still came around the old homestead from time to looking at what he used to own, probably remembering a time when he was much happier and much safer. My husband knew him by name, too. Said the guy asked him for a few cigarettes a few times, but he doesn't smoke, so all he could do was offer him a few dollars and some well wishes. The whole thing just pendulums between creepy and sad for me. Like, yeah, it's creepy that he was hanging around our house at night. But the other thing that really creeps me out is how he used to just be a regular guy. My husband said he was a family man, knew that he at least used to have a wife and kids, a model life at one time that just somehow went to crap. Maybe it was drugs. Maybe it was a divorce that just fried his mental health at some point. Either way, at one time, he was just like you and me. And I suppose that same thing could happen to any of us given the right kinds of circumstances. A slide into addiction to ease the pain of heartbreak, that scares me more than any ghost or ghoul. I mean, we have no idea what's around the corner, so I try my best to count my blessings these days and not to take anything for granted because you really don't ever know when you're going to lose things and never truly know when it's your last time hugging a loved one or seeing a friend. You never know when that happiness is just going to slip away from you, never to return. I am a 30-year-old male from Boston, Massachusetts, and this happened to me when I was 16 years old. I was away in an all-boys boarding school in Tennessee. I was in a phase of hating everything about this school and resented my parents for leaving me there. During my first week, I wasn't interested in making friends, just sulked and wished to become 18 years old so I can leave this place for good and start my own life and do whatever I want, like a typical angry teenager. A week later, once my anger had simmered, I figured, well, since I'm here, I might as well make the most of it and just make some friends. During recreation period, 
I spotted a few guys from my dorm hanging around a lunch bin out next to the basketball court, so I walked over to try my attempts of being social. When I arrived at the bench, a student, we'll call him Gavin, was telling the other guys his eerie experience while doing chores in our dorm. I arrived in the middle of the story, so what I gathered from the story, it, it was Gavin's turn to clean the dorm hallway as it was his room's week for cleaning the entire dorm common area and hallway. Gavin was in the middle of cleaning when he started to feel like someone was watching him. Gavin looked around trying to find the source, but the hall was empty. Everyone in the dorm was cleaning other parts of the building, and he was all alone on that floor. Gavin tried to convince himself that he was just tired, and coming from a big family in a single-family home, he was never truly alone during his upbringing. So he just chalked this up to him experiencing true solitude for the first time. So he resumed his duties. Gavin then said he started to feel goosebumps running throughout his entire body and a slight chill on the back of his neck, as if someone was very close behind him, breathing. Gavin didn't want to turn around to face whoever was there, so he just took off running until he found other guys working in their respective areas and assisted them, pretending everything was fine. Side note, around that time period, I was a skeptic in anything paranormal. Yes, I enjoyed watching ghost adventures and all those cheesy ghost hunter shows, but that was only for laughs and entertainment. Please, do people really believe in this stuff? Anyway, this student, Gavin, he was talking about how he doesn't like to clean the dorm hallway alone, because he always felt that someone was watching him. I remember rolling my eyes listening to this story, and was about to call BS on Gavin's entire story when another student, let's call him Adam, spoke up about his personal encounter in Dorm 2, ultimately corroborating with Gavin's story. Gavin's story stuck with me throughout the rest of the recreation period, until it was time for us to go back to our respective dorms to have dinner, do our homework, and get ready for bed. During the last few minutes before lights out, I laid in my bed just thinking about Gavin's story, envisioning the entire experience. The fact I was staying in the exact same dorm made me feel both excited and nervous. Lights out came, and it was time for bed. Even though I had been there for a whole week thus far, I never truly got used to sleeping in a foreign bed and wished to be back home in Boston in my own room, playing video games and sleeping in my own bed. I guess I was deeply fantasizing about me being back home because I ended up falling asleep. While during my sleep, I found myself groggily waking up for some reason. The entire room was partially dark, and the expectation of road lights outside my window, which illuminated the room a fair bit. I was laying on my stomach, but I felt my spine slowly bending slightly upwards as if someone tied a rope to my legs and was slowly hoisting me up. I collected myself fully, coming out of my sleep state, to notice my leg was actually being pulled up into the air. Then, my leg just dropped back down to the bed, as goosebumps echoed throughout my body. I quickly sat up and scanned the room, allowing my eyes to adjust to the dark. At first, I figured it was one of my three roommates, who were playing a joke on me because I was the new guy, but they were all asleep in their areas of the room. I felt uneasy, as that was the most bizarre thing 
to ever happen to me in my entire life. I was about to get out of bed to wake up one of the guys to tell them about my experience. Then, I saw them. Now, our room door was one of those classroom-type doors, with a narrow vertical rectangular-shaped window. Outside of this door window was the dorm hallway, which was also dark, but the red glow to the exit sign outside in the hallway illuminated two men. They were silhouettes. These two men appeared to be having some sort of discussion because they were moving slowly, expressing with their hands the way some people do throughout a conversation. However, there was no tone that I could hear, not even a whisper. It was absolutely silent, but they were having a flat-out silent conversation. My skeptical mind figured it was guys from another room, and they were responsible for lifting my legs, and now they were planning whatever else they can do to screw with me or my roommates. Well, the joke's on them, because I'm about to sneak over to the door and catch them in the act, and put an end to this nonsense, so I can go back to sleep. I slowly got out of my bed, and kept low to the floor, as to not, as to not let them see me. I slowly made my way over to them, still keeping an eye on them, as they continued their silent conversation. I looked over at my two roommates who were sleeping in their own beds, solidifying my suspicion of other guys in the dorm pranking us. I grabbed a hold of the door to our room, quickly stood up, and flung open the door. Only when I opened it, the hallway was empty. No one was around. It was impossible for these two guys to have run down the hall back to their rooms, because I would have seen and heard them running. Besides, they couldn't possibly make it back to their rooms in time of me opening the door. This didn't make any sense. Just then, I felt a chill on the back of my neck, as if someone was standing right behind me. I froze. Someone was standing there, behind me, breathing on my neck. Dread took over my body, which made me angry because I hate feeling helpless. I quickly turned around to face whoever was standing behind me, only again to find nothing, except three sleeping roommates. I closed the door of the room and walked back to my bed and laid back down, keeping an eye on the door. The two men were gone. No silhouettes. Nothing. I honestly can't say what I experienced that night, because even as I tell this story, I'm still trying to rationalize what I saw. Was I half asleep the entire time? Did my constant thinking about Gavin's story really take my brain for a ride, to the point I started hallucinating? The brain is very powerful, and it can make you feel, see, hear, and smell anything if you really focus on it long and hard enough. I could go with that explanation, but I actually got out of bed, walked over to the door, all while keeping my eyes on those silhouetted men the entire time as they had their silent conversation. I was in fact fully awake. I just don't know. Ever since then I've kept my mind open to the unknown, and I have experienced other weird stuff later in life, but those are stories for another time. So to the silhouetted men, why did you lift my legs so high in the air? What were you doing? And what were you conversing about at 3 a.m. outside of my dorm? I guess I'll never know.
Before I begin this insanely terrifying tale, do me a favor. Think of the one person that you have a genuine connection with. Not a romantic connection, just a friendly connection. Think of the one person that you trust and that helps you with anything and everything. It doesn't matter how you met or, or how long you've known each other. Do you have that person? Good. Hopefully this story does not affect your friendship with that person. In the end of 2018, I was a sophomore in college, and I was majoring in physics. I was taking one of my final calculus courses, and on the first day of class, I sat down next to this guy who would become one of my closest, most trusted friends. For the sake of this story, let's call him Tony. I'm a female, and when we first met, I'm not going to lie, there was a bit of an attraction, but it was nothing more than the completely natural thought of, that person is good looking. Nothing ever happened, and it was as if we were only meant to be friends. We would study together for exams, and when I needed help with a physics chapter, he would go out of his way to meet up with me and help me out. We told each other everything about ourselves, not in an attempt to flirt or anything, but just talking as if we were long-lost friends. At the time of our meeting, I was managing a very well-known retail store, and during the Christmas season of 2018, I was looking for seasonal workers. I gave Tony a job, and we maintained a manager-employee relationship at work, and then we were regular friends outside of work. He was one of the best salespeople that I had on staff, and he caught on rather quickly and got along with everyone. He was hilarious. After the Christmas season was over in January of 2019, he left the store, and we went on with our normal friendship. Sadly, we somehow just stopped talking towards the end of 2019. We didn't get into an argument or anything, and we still liked each other's posts on Facebook and Instagram. Then, this year, 2020, the news broke. My new best friend was planning something terrible for our school. He was arrested on federal charges for threats against the school. He had planned, and he was ready. He said that he had planned for plenty of time, and he would get enough people to make him a legend. He had a list of people that he wanted to take care of at the school. Who was on that list? Me. Don't trust anyone. Ever. I've got a story for you about my stepdad, and this one is pretty creepy. So when I was little, my stepdad used to work the night shift at a gas station on the outskirts of Reno, Nevada, in a nice part of town off the highway before you head up to the Sierra Nevadas and Lake Tahoe. It's also the route you could have taken to reach Donner Pass, which is the party, along with the Reeds, who were settlers that got snowed in on their travels to California and wound up eating their dead companions to try and stay alive. The area back then was fairly new, and the Shell gas station was really nice. There were quite a few, there were quite a few other stores in that area, along with a bagel shop and a grocery store, and everything was made out of this really dark wood paneling. My stepdad never had any problems working the night shift, though he did tell me some interesting characters would come in, and he often had regulars that he became friends with. My stepdad was the only one in the shop when he worked the night shift, and he was always told about the ghost that liked to pester the other workers. 
like turn off lights, open or close the bathroom door, knock snacks off the shelf, the works. My stepdad, being the massive skeptic as he is, didn't believe any of these stories, and because nothing ever happened to him, he just brushed them off. Until one night. My stepdad is working on the night shifts, and it's a pretty quiet night. He hasn't had many customers coming through other than for gas, and since it's a pay-at-the-pump station, hardly anyone comes into the store. So my stepdad is playing on his phone, and frequently glances up at the doors or at the security monitor to see if anyone is coming. But the station is deserted. He turns his attention back to his game when he hears the electronic sliding doors open and the sound of the bell above the door goes off. My stepdad puts his phone down and looks up to greet the customer, but he doesn't see anyone. He calls out, but no one answers. He glances at the security camera, but doesn't see anyone else in the shop except him, and there are no cars at the station or in the parking lot. He gets a little weirded out, since the doors have sensors, and the only time they open is if they sense someone approaching them but he just chalks it up to a prank or some sort of malfunction and gets back to his game. Hello. He hears the voice as clear as day right in front of him, and his head immediately snaps up to speak to the customer he clearly did not see before. There's no one there. He's even more weirded out, but convinces himself he was either imagining things or that the sound somehow came from his phone or the radio. Then, he hears the screams. He said the sound of the woman screaming came out of nowhere, and they were so loud and so chilling, he jumped and dropped his phone. My stepdad is a pretty big guy, about 6'2", and a little hefty, and he doesn't normally get scared over much. But he said the screaming terrified him so much, he couldn't really think straight. He ran out from behind the counter and checked the aisles, but no one was there. He checked the bathrooms and maintenance closet, and no one was in there. But the screams were still going, and they were still deafeningly loud. So he thinks, maybe there's a woman outside who might be hurt or being attacked. He runs outside to where he thinks the screaming woman is. Nobody there. The lot is empty. There are no people, no cars, nothing. He checks around the back of the store and does a loop but he can't find the source of the screaming, and, just as suddenly as the screaming had started, it stopped. He goes back inside and checks the security tapes to see if he's missing anything, but other than him running inside and outside of the store like an idiot, he doesn't see anything else, and he's unsure of what to think. The next day, he's leaving work and his co-worker takes over. He tells them about what happened, brushing it off as just some weird prank by some little punk, but the co-worker's response was very different, and even though my stepdad doesn't believe in any sort of paranormal activity, the words still stick with him all these years later. Oh, so you heard her too. This may sound strange to some people, but I collect movies on VHS. My collection is currently at over 1,000 and growing daily. 
I spend my weekends searching through thrift shops and online sellers for interesting and hard-to-find cassettes. Sometimes I'll purchase lots or boxes of tapes. These often include home recordings of forgotten television shows and family memories deemed no longer important. A time was, I loved nothing more than to cuddle up and watch them with my girlfriend. Although most turned out to be boring, I occasionally stumble upon something very special. A couple of years ago, I was browsing through Craigslist and I came across a box of cassettes. It was taking up space and they wanted it gone, free to the first person to show up. So I pounced on the deal. An hour later, I was parked in front of my TV with a big box of tapes. The haul totaled 44. Many were blank or home recordings lacking labels. Oh well, I always love a mystery. I had a few hours before work and watched a tape or two on Fast Forward. The first had an episode of the original Battlestar Galactica, and the other was blank. Once I was done, I pushed the box into the closet and left for work. It would stay there for another nine months, untouched and forgotten. In the meantime, I bought countless more tapes, and my collection began to take over my spare bedroom. I built a massive shelf to store it all, and inventoried each tape as I shelved them. This is how I remembered the box in my closet. When I realized I hadn't finished watching each tape, I set aside an evening with my girlfriend to do so. I remember that night like it was yesterday. My girlfriend, Brittany, arrived just after 7 p.m. We made dinner together and had Butterfinger ice cream for dessert. At about 9, we curled up together and started the first tape. The next few hours, we saw a recording of NBC primetime from 1987, three movies from HBO, and a wedding from 1991. Brittany especially loved that one. The fourth tape was also a wedding. I watched as much as I could before opting on a pee break and having a smoke. When I stepped away, she was fully engrossed in the ceremony. After I hit the head, I slipped out on the porch for a cigarette. That only took five minutes max. Before I returned to the bedroom, I grabbed a refill of water. I was in the process of doing this when I heard Brittany scream my name. I ran into the room as fast as I could. She had her hands over her mouth and her eyes were the size of saucers. Her gaze seemed to be fixed on the TV screen. What? What? I said. I leaned over the TV but saw nothing but a blue screen. I asked her again. She remained speechless, but pressed rewind on the VCR. A few seconds later, she pressed play and patted on the spot next to her. I assumed this meant sit down, so I did. The tape began as the happy couple prepared to cut the cake. I got annoyed and asked, What is going on with you? Wait a second, it's coming. The words were so sudden, I jumped. So I kept watching, waiting for some mystery thing to occur. The couple were feeding one another cake, and the recording cut out. Static blared at us for a moment, before a new recording began. Now, a man was staring at us. He looked to be staring at a video camera. When he moved away from the camera, you could see a nude woman laying on a bed. The guy hopped on the bed, and they began... doing things. All right, baby, I said in a joking way. 
Brittany snapped and told me to shut up. By this point, I was completely dumbfounded. I almost felt embarrassed watching it. The couple continued coupling, and the woman whispered, Choke me. He did. And I'm thinking, okay, this is kind of kinky, to myself. Not my thing, but to each their own. The man continues to choke the woman. She began gasping for air, but he didn't stop. Even when she grabbed his arms, he kept going. He completed the act and let go of her throat. The couple laid quietly together for a few moments and said nothing. Suddenly, the man turns towards the woman. He stares for a few seconds, then abruptly starts shaking her. The dude is yelling her name and occasionally slapping her cheeks, but she's not moving. This is when I started to catch on. The man then stands up, now holding his partner by the shoulders and shaking her. Still no movement. This is when he started to catch on. He eventually stops and just stares into her empty eyes. I'm beginning to freak out now. No way. Brittany is silent. The man sat down on the edge of the bed, his head buried in his hands. A low sobbing could be heard. This goes on for a few moments before he remembers the camera. In one long motion, he reaches out and slams his hand down on it. The blaring of the static returned, and I sat, struck dumb. The hissing continued until Brittany finally pressed stop. Dude. It was the only word I could get out. I had never seen anything like that in my life. Brittany turned towards me and asked what we should do. I honestly had no idea. I still couldn't believe it was real. Maybe it wasn't. Let me have a smoke and I'll consider our options. I retreated outside to think. When I returned, I proposed the idea that it may have been fake. I don't want to go to the cops until I'm sure it's real. No way do I want to become the butt of some troll's joke. Okay. If she had any misgivings, she kept them to herself. She may have still been in shock. I know I was. Our evening was clearly over. I suggested she stay the night, but she declined. No big deal. I'd have a hard time getting any sleep until I knew the truth. My first goal was to contact the tape's previous owner. I knew for sure the man in the tape wasn't the guy I had gotten the box from. There was a good chance he may know his identity, though. My emails went unanswered. I tried to contact him by phone, but his number no longer worked. I finally went by his place and discovered he had moved. Without a way to contact him, my options had run out. Off to the police it would be. The cops said that they would watch the video and contact me if they had any additional questions. It was out of my hands now. In the weeks during my search, I had seen very little of Brittany. She always had some excuse. I figured it was only a matter of time before she ended things completely. Another week would pass before she'd call. I can't do this anymore. I haven't slept for weeks. All I see is that woman. There was no sense in arguing. I wished her a good life and hung up the phone. It would have been heartless to expect her to let it go. I definitely had my share of bad dreams over the past month. If her feelings change in the future, I am not hard to find. 
Hundreds of cassettes have passed through my hands since then. With room now becoming scarce, I have taken I have taken to selling blank tapes and extra copies of films. With Brittany no longer in the picture, I admit, curling up in bed and watching tapes has lost a bit of its luster. Most of my viewing takes place in the living room now. To this day, every time I put an unlabeled tape in the player, I get a little tinge of fear. I have had a lot of time to think it over. When you collect something that captures a moment in time, a sliver of someone's life, you never know what terrible secret you may uncover.